This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks. The underpinning assumption is that we actually have nothing to learn from Africa, not least because we see Africa as the place where diseases start, from where diseases spread. And then aligned with that is a sense that Africa is very poor and by extension can't really look after itself without Western intervention. There is a colonial legacy there. Many African countries took very early in, in the pandemic in Africa, while some had still very few cases. Some others had uh, almost none. Where does all the technical assistance come from? Well, Western Europe and North America. Look at this now in Africa. During COVID, there was no technical assistance. They did it by themselves. And yet we're still going to have this argument about, oh, it's the population, it's the age, it's the rural versus urban, instead of saying, actually, they had the expertise and didn't need you at that time. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme, what can the global north learn from the global south about COVID-19? Here in Europe, a handful of countries are continuing to report record numbers of daily COVID-19 infections. But it seems to be a very different picture in Africa, with the continent's overall infection rate steadily dropping over the past two months. In African countries, poor living conditions are endemic. And yet, so far, the continent has avoided the worst of the pandemic. Rwanda is the most densely populated country in mainland Africa. With limited resources as a low-income country, it is emerging as one of the few nations that has effectively managed coronavirus and contact tracing. So this podcast actually started, believe it or not, with a tweet. I was sitting in a World Health Organization press conference, and I was really impressed by a doctor from Sierra Leone, who was explaining to us how they had suppressed COVID-19. And in Geneva, at that point, we had, I think, the highest rate of infection in Europe, well over 2,000 per 100,000 people. So I just put this little tweet out saying that maybe Europe had something to learn from countries in Africa like Sierra Leone about how to cope with the pandemic. Just an innocent little tweet, but it received an enormous kind of response. One of those first to respond was Lata Narayanaswamy. She's an associate professor of global development at Leeds University. And now she's here. She's on our podcast. So Lata, the first thing I want to ask you is, why did you respond to that tweet? Yes, thank you. I mean, it was great to see you highlighting the fact that we would have something to learn from Sierra Leone's doctors who were sort of sharing their pandemic response. But I was struck by there was a tone of surprise in suggesting that Europe might have something to learn. And whilst you meant it ironically, I think there is actually a, a, a wider perception where actually people don't see that as ironic at all that the underpinning assumption is that we actually have nothing to learn from Africa, not least because we see Africa as the place where diseases start, from where diseases spread. 
And then aligned with that is a sense that Africa is very poor and by extension can't really look after itself without Western intervention. And they have lots of experience. And this is experience that is, a, that is important to acknowledge. Lots of local African expertise, which we, we, we really should be thinking of as global expertise, that we have something to learn from. But we tend not to think of Africa as a source of knowledge or expertise. And what's been really interesting, which I think why I, I felt compelled to respond to your tweet, because I actually think you might be the exception, in the sense that in the mainstream media more widely, what we've seen is, is, is an attempt to find any explanation that might explain the African response to the pandemic. Oh, there are already quite a few diseases, so they have some inbuilt immunity. Africans are younger. And it's very rare to see anybody engaging with the possibility that Africa's response, or many African, not all African, many African countries' response might have anything to do with expertise uh, and competence. And that assumption that there is no expertise, nothing to learn from, hasn't been lost on doctors in Africa. Dr Ngoyen Senga is coordinating the World Health Organization's COVID response across the continent. And I caught up with him in his office in Brazzaville, where he did confess a certain irritation. Uh, sometimes, yes. Uh, actually, to be honest, yes, I, it, uh, it gives you this impression that Africa cannot get it right. I mean, <laughs> what assumption is that? Why Africa and Africa can't get it right? They can. It's true that uh, infectious diseases are common in Africa. More than 80% of our emergencies, situation emergencies, are outbreaks in, in, in Africa or infectious diseases. So uh, at uh, the health worker level first, we are everyday training and everyday practice and everyday tested. Well, so what I'd like to ask you then, Dr. Nsengo, you're talking about medical staff in Africa being everyday in practice, everyday tested. I'm sitting in Geneva, which at the start of November had the highest infection rate of COVID-19 in Europe, over two and a half thousand cases per 100,000. What has Sierra Leone, which has brought its cases down to virtually nothing, done right that we're doing wrong? No, I think the question is just, what did we do? <laughs> Simply, what did we do? Uh, first of all, I think uh, there, there are so many factors that may have contributed to the trajectory of the pandemic that we see today in Africa. And uh, obviously, among those factors uh, are human intervention. Mostly is about human behavior and the intervention, public health intervention. From my own point of view, again, the difference between policy level between uh, African countries and what happened in Europe, the policies in Africa were not politicized. There was very little discussion, political discussion, if I, I can put it that way, about the measure, be it the social distancing, and there was very little discontent. Uh, it was, uh, these are public health measures. They were understood as public health measures. So generally, there was no that kind of political debate. So uh, that, I think, uh, also translated in the community, again, coming to the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, many African countries took those public interventions 
very early in the pandemic in Africa, while some had still very few cases, some others had uh, almost none yet. So many African countries started early, preparing before the first cases of COVID were even recorded. And the population accepted the measures were important. Hi, everyone. I work for Costco and I'm asking this member to put on a mask because that is our company policy. So either wear the mask. And I'm not doing it because I woke up in a free country. Rather different, says public health expert Colleen Daniels, who is herself South African, from the approach of some in Europe and North America. In Africa, it's been amazing, the response People lost their jobs, so they started making masks at home. Um, whereas here in London, where I am at the moment, or in the U.S., you have people protesting masks instead of uh, embracing them and trying to mitigate the, the disease. And so I, I think the surprise is more that the rest of the world is shocked at, at what we've been able to accomplish in, 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 in Africa. I'm a South African, by the way. Um, We didn't wait. The first COVID cases were in in January and they started responding in February and they actually started locking down early. They started responding to the potential threat, looking at modeling and so on. I think the experience in African countries of managing infectious diseases, Sub-Saharan Africa is dealing with 116 ongoing infectious disease events. 104 outbreaks, and 12 humanitarian emergencies. So COVID is just another one. And so there's an infrastructure to be able to handle it. Yes, the infrastructure is weak, but the actual fact is that Africa responded rapidly. If you look at the Global Health Security Index, on their website, they have this map. This is from 2019, and it shows the world, uh, countries in yellow, which are most prepared to respond to health insecurities, um, countries in orange, a little more prepared, and then red. those in red, the least prepared. Most of Africa is in red, least prepared. And all the yellow countries are, you know, it's Australia, it's United Kingdom, it's France, and North America. And yet, with our response to COVID, it has shown that this map is completely wrong. The Global Health Index hasn't been able to look at the varying factors like leadership. I think leadership in Africa was one of the things that's been missing in other parts of the world. It takes good leaders to make hard decisions, and we haven't really seen that in the North. Can you understand that, that these, are, these are countries which are very reluctant, given their, the kind of political structures they have, to impose that kind of order on their populations? Well, is it? I mean, okay. so look at South Africa, right? South Africa is a democracy. It's like the U.S. It's like um, the United Kingdom. They had one of the world's earliest and strictest lockdowns. And now it's ending. You know, economic activity is resuming. The borders are slowly opening up and they've started to take stock of where they've come from. The official death toll is, of course, horrific. That's 15,000 South Africans who lost their lives. But it was lower than even the most optimistic modeling predicted. South Africa is a country that has a a democracy that's similar to to countries in, in the West. So, yes, I can understand that argument. But I really do think it comes more from the fact that the West wants to see Africa in a certain light because we are black and brown. And so I think a lot of this surprise at the way Africa's responded is 
is a is because they trivialize local knowledge because it doesn't adhere to white notions of expertise. And so, you know, part of this is, is it my question? And I don't have an answer, but is it delusion? Is it arrogance? Is it both? Somebody else I talked to about this particular topic suggested that the attitude about, oh, how is it that African countries, by and large, seem to have managed to suppress this virus much better than, say, the European ones, although the European ones have tried in their own way. It's always attributed to the the demographics are younger or they live rurally, so there's less social contact or their immune systems are better because they're exposed to more infectious diseases. Um, And this is kind of a post-colonial attitude because it's always not what is actively being done by health leaders in African countries, but just, oh, it's the situation. But what do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think those are excuses. I I think that's um, another way. Look, when you think of the demographic, or it must be that they're young, or they live in a rural area, we continue, and the North continues this narrative of dehumanizing um, the other. And Africa is a good example. Indigenous people around the world uh, are a good example of this. And if you look at the way global health works today, we continue that. Because what makes us think we can treat poor people in distant lands as beneficiaries of our money or targets of our interventions? What makes their lives a deliverable or an outcome? So, you know, a good example is technical assistance. Where does all the technical assistance come from? Well, Western Europe and North America. And look at look at this now in Africa during COVID, there was no technical assistance. They did it by themselves. And yet we're still going to have this argument about, oh, it's the population, it's the age, it's the rural versus urban, instead of saying, actually, they had the expertise and didn't need you at that time. Lata Narayanaswamy takes that thought a step further. Not only does the global north assume it's better equipped to tackle disease than the global south, it ignores the vast experience African and other countries have fighting infectious diseases. I mean, I think we we underestimate the sorts of public health crises that we have dealt with. So we can focus on Africa and think actually there is a, a communicable disease burden that goes largely unacknowledged in terms of what they're actually managing simultaneously, right? So Ebola was one that got quite a lot of attention. But we can think of recent outbreaks of, say, the Zika virus in Brazil. We can also think of the SARS viruses that uh, predated the current COVID-19 pandemic in East Asia. And these are all places in the world that have had a much more proactive and and, uh, functional response to the current pandemic than what we've seen in, in Europe and North America, and collectively, it's fair to say that the West, in a very broad sense, has done less well, and certainly death rates in the US and the UK have been out of sync with what we've seen in, uh, say, Vietnam, where death rates are extremely low. I think there's absolutely something about a capacity that has developed over many years to balance those risks and to have proactive public health responses in a range of African countries, with the most recent example being having to tackle Ebola, which is a much more infectious and a much worse disease in terms of its its uh, mortality rates and, and, and its infectiousness. So there are absolutely lessons from that that I think we are also unwilling to listen to. 
are we too focused on really high-tech medicine and lots and lots of investment into heart disease? Rightly, but the fact that we've been told for years that there could be another pandemic, European countries, America, the whole world has been told to prepare by the World Health Organization, and yet our focus still seems to be on other kinds of illnesses. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting point. I mean, if you sort, if we step back and look at why that might be, then again, if we go back to the ways in which we manage health, and in particular, the, the tendency towards a kind of medicalization. So there is this sort of disconnect between what the World Health Organization, you know, they had their big commission on the social determinants of health in 2008. And in a way was telling us something that actually lots of people who work in public health have been saying for a long time, which is that we need some joined up thinking around well-being and and things like diet and exercise and, you know, access to education or even human rights as sources of health, right? That they don't sit separate to hospitals and doctors and, and GPs and drugs. But the other aspect of that, because I, I think it's really interesting, and I think it's a great question you're asking, because... That focus on tech doesn't also exist in a vacuum. So there's a couple of things that I think, again, worth sort of stepping back and trying to work out where that focus on tech comes from and what it means. So we live in a system, particularly when it comes to, say, innovation around drugs and responses to um, health and medical concerns, that is fundamentally a competition-based one. And at the heart of that sits the big pharmaceutical companies. They're all private profit-making entities, right? And in the context of something like this global pandemic, what we need, as as we've already talked about, is, is cooperation. So what makes an effective public health response is that collective civic response, right? So we're all in this together. We all come together. That also necessitates a level of learning and sharing and listening. Competitive systems don't allow us to do that in the same way. A communicable disease is one which can be caught from someone else. This means that the germs have to leave the body of a sick person and enter the body of one who is well. In fact, Europe and North America have plenty of experience tackling infectious diseases, but a lot of it was quite a while ago. As individuals and as a community, we can do many things to halt this movement of germs and prevent the spread of disease. Time, says Dr. Ngoyen Senga, to delve into our collective memories. What can change the, the trajectory of the pandemic? How did Europe get rid of cholera? Is human intervention. It's not because the cholera mutated or because uh, European got uh, cross-immunization to cholera. How did they get rid of tuberculosis? It's not because they got cross-immunization or because it is because of human interventions. Again, human interventions, be it at a biological level, vaccine, they discover vaccine, but also change of lifestyle and change of life environment. So those provided to Europe where they are now with very few infectious diseases. So that principle remains, be it COVID or any other disease, that basic principle of epidemiology remains the same. And that's where we, we, we are right now. I've been um, reading your Ebola diaries because you were very um, active in the, the fight against Ebola. And one thing you said struck me. You said Ebola has been a cruel teacher. It gave us a serious test and now it's up to us to learn the lessons. 
is COVID nineteen a cruel teacher for the world? <laughs> Absolutely, I, I, I would uh, repeat the same sentence for COVID. Actually, I'm re even repeating it as often as I, I get opportunity. But I have to be also honest: some interventions really took place uh, based on the experience at the World Health of Ebola. But now, seeing COVID, I'm saying, yeah, we maybe have learned lesson, but did we learn the right ones? <laughs> True. I mean, the world has uh, a lot to learn from uh, this experience of uh, COVID, uh, from uh, the community to the policy level. You know, a public health emergency, like an outbreak, is in the community. That's why it is called an outbreak, is because it's in the community. And there is no way we can win that battle without the community. It's difficult. Resources are important, absolutely. But in combating a pandemic or an outbreak, resources is not everything. It's how we smartly use resources. And the resources here in a very broad sense of it, meaning the knowledge we have, that's the resources, the capital, the culture capital, the human capital, of course, the financial capital, the infrastructure capital is how we use those resources that make us smarter than the virus. Otherwise, the virus would be much smarter than human beings. So will we be smart and use the resources we have and learn lessons from our past and from our neighbours? Colleen Daniels is not so sure. We don't learn the lessons. You know, I think as human beings, it takes us so many times to learn a lesson. But in most countries in Africa, they're seeing it on a daily basis. They're seeing different infectious diseases on a daily basis and they can respond. I find it appalling that we cannot learn lessons. Um, you know, it's taken us so long to eradicate polio and smallpox and other diseases and yet we don't look at that and and i'm hopeful well i am hoping that in in three to five years when students are are doing their public health global public health degrees they're actually going to to look at the response to covid 19 as the you know those countries like senegal like vietnam taiwan south korea and um, so many in sub-Saharan Africa, I think Kenya is a good example, South Africa is a good example, to use those as the examples of what you do do in a health security crisis like COVID-19. And I hope that they teach that what you don't do is what the United Kingdom, the United States and others, Brazil, have done. It's, it's illogical, it is not based in science, and it doesn't respond to the needs of the people. And there is nothing democratic about not using evidence to serve an entire population. We're going to begin tonight with a possible breakthrough in the development of a coronavirus vaccine. The drug maker Pfizer said its vaccine is 90% effective and it could be ready for approval in weeks. Well, that sent the Dow soaring. Something else now looming on the horizon that may not be democratic, access to a new vaccine. Here, both Lata and Colleen worry rich countries may try to buy themselves out of trouble. The history of, of, of profiteering off of new drugs doesn't give me much hope. Um, the sorts of uh, intellectual property bun fights, as, as I think you rightly call it, 
over the over generic drugs is a real challenge. Because if we if we leave the profit making motive at the center of how we then distribute those resources, we will be left wanting. And I would certainly want to see more cooperation in our global system. I'd want to see, you know, in my ideal world, that vaccine would be produced, it would be tested, it would be made safe, and then it would be produced at cost and distributed all around the world. That's my ideal world. And I think we share that goal about wanting to save as many lives as possible. If we have a company like Pfizer coming out with a full priced diagnostic priced at, let's say, a North American market, it will be completely inaccessible to most of the world. If we are talking about decolonizing health, if we're talking about equity, then we need to have a vaccine that is priced at a point that everyone can have it, particularly since so much taxpayer money has gone into developing these vaccines. So a lot of countries have put in a lot of money to support private pharmaceutical companies to develop these vaccines. If we allow companies to profit from this, then we are we are systemically maintaining an inequitable system. We are choosing to systemically continue racist systems. The last word goes to Dr. Ngoyen Zenga. Being outbid by richer countries for treatments and vaccines is unfortunately nothing new to him. No, we have seen it even before the vaccine, actually. We have seen it for lab testing reagent, for instance. Uh, rich countries want to get it all. And uh, uh, what now in terms of a vaccine we are calling vaccine nationalism. In Africa, we're really concerned about that kind of uh, nationalism. Uh, but we are also very hopeful because at the global level, there have been uh, some platform and mechanism that have been put in place uh, through WHO and other partners to avoid exactly that. This disease, actually, the COVID for me, revealed the, the ugliness of inequality, be it at country level or within the country or at global level. It is revealed, and we should learn that as a, it is shown how they have and have not can suffer disproportionately. As a global community, we shouldn't accept that. We should accept that based on where you are born, in which family you are born, in which area you're living, in which country you're living, your faith, actually your life, and the life of your loved ones, your parents, your children, the global as a global community, humanity should not accept that. Indeed, humanity should not accept that. And on that hopefully hopeful note, we've reached the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Lata Narayana Swami. Colleen Daniels and Ngoyen Senga for taking part and of course to you for listening. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series 
including an in-depth discussion on the race for a vaccine against the coronavirus and a special documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.